0: Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England, when I was three years old. And I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan, and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. I actually just
1: finished uh, working on a show for Apple. Yeah. Um. They announced it a while ago, so I can tell you what it is. It's called Wolf Boy and the Everything Factory. Yeah. It should be premiering next month, maybe. So, oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. How long have you been working on that for? Through the pandemic.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we finished it a few months ago. Or I finished my area because I just directed it. Yeah. I directed half the episodes. There yeah. Now, actually, there are four directors on it. I directed a fourth of the episodes. Yeah.
0: And what's your,
1: what's the concept of the show? It's kind of, I'm going to botch this, but
0: it's actually, am I allowed, I don't don't think I'm allowed to tell you. That's funny. Uh, Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. I like that. (laughs) So I can discover the concept when the show goes live. I was about to tell you, and then as I was scrolling my head, I'm like,
1: what did Apple announce? Oh, I can't announce anything that Apple hasn't said.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so, I'm like, okay,
1: they're not, because they're very careful about things, like they wouldn't even tell people the name of the show. So they're very um, particular about names, and so we couldn't. I couldn't say I'm working on this show. I just said an untitled Apple project, and then they had their announcement, and they showed the Wolf Boy and the Everything Factory, and they showed little clips in there, and I'm like, okay, I can share clips. These little I think there's probably five seconds total of clips and the title, and there's no audio, just visual. So,
0: wow. Well, when it does go live, I'm gonna I'm gonna look forward to checking that out. And I think now is as good a time as any to say, welcome to Hard Agree. I'm Andrew Sumner, and I'm here with my very special guest, the creator of my all-time favorite cartoon network show by a mile, the one and only Van Partable. The creator of Johnny Bravo. How you doing, mate? I'm doing well, thank you very
1: much. That's it. Thank you for having me. It's just I don't really talk to a lot of people outside of my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a nice thing. Like I, I haven't been, go- I'm trying to do it more right now, going out yeah. and talking to friends and just uh, being with people and learning how to converse outside of Zoom yeah. So it's kind of a weird thing. This I haven't been doing a lot of Zoom calls lately. I was doing them a bunch during the pandemic. Yeah. But now it's like trying to get used to being relational with people. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've lost the ability to capture. A, I mean, part of it is old age. But <laughs> the ability to remember all the things that people are asking me or just finding the words to say stuff. It's just... An awkward thing. So thank you for having me on the podcast so I can show everybody how much lapse in my head is.
0: See, I couldn't even figure out a sentence to say what I'm trying to say. Yeah, mate. we're actually recording this uh, (laughs) around about the time when we would normally have our annual conversation, San Diego Comic Con. Yes. Where, where I not only see you every year, but I've met a few members of your family over the years. Yeah. So, so, so this is a nice substitute. I love San Diego <laughs> and it's one of my favorite places in the world. I particularly love San Diego Comic Con. We always have such a great time there. But this is a nice substitute for that, mate. It um, is a nice substitute. Yes. I've, I don't know if I ever told
1: you that, but I've been going to San Diego Comic Con since 1986. That was my first one. And so it's. It's grown since then, of course. (laughs) Yeah, more than somewhat, yeah. Yeah, it's fun because for a while, I went there all through from when I was in high school through college and beyond then. And then as it started growing, I was one of those people that was like, it's too big, I don't like this. And then I kind of stopped because it kind of got old for me. And then one of my friends was like, I would I've never been I'm like well we should go then and so I just took them and I got to see it through someone's eyes who had never been there and I was like this and just just to see it for what it was that it's this fun thing yeah and and I can go and I can see people that I usually don't get to see that's that's what's super cool about it is that in the industry everybody's working everybody's doing their thing but it's San Diego Con, they're all there yeah. and you can just run into them at a party you can run into them on the street and you can catch up whereas if otherwise you'd have to just schedule a lunch with somebody or a call or whatever
0: so it's good that's stuff true. that's what i love about it too i've also had that experience of seeing it through the eyes of a friend that i brought along and on on our titan entertainment booth which 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 i run at san diego the the which um, is huge which is a big old booth isn't it yeah uh, and it's a vast booth uh, and johnny bravo of course has starred in it on a number of occasions on that booth and for a long period of time my son used to come my son joe used to come along and work the booth with us and he, he probably did it for about eight years straight uh, and I, I remember you know it, it, it I, when it, it was great watching go from a you know teenage teenage guy to being a fully grown like young man going through the whole experience. And and I remember thinking, man, I wish I'd been able to come and do stuff like this with my dad when I was at that age. Because my dad was always trying to take me to sporting events, which is his thing. You know, which is, is great. But, I, I mean, I like the camaraderie of sports and events, but sports themselves bore me to death. So, you know, I went yeah. to a lot of Liverpool football club, Liverpool soccer club matches, classic ones when I was a little kid. I think they were just totally yeah. lost on me. But, but going to going to San Diego is an incredibly feel-good time, I think. Such a feel-good event. And yeah. also the fact that it's San Diego itself is a non-profit and, you know, it's run for the propagation of comic books as an art form, as a medium. I think that's a beautiful thing. It lends a whole different atmosphere to the whole place.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love talking all about it. And I love, we haven't taken enough pictures. That was the sad part is that every year we would go, and we were always embarrassed to take pictures. But I had like, the first year that I went, I was collecting autographs. So I remember I got like an autograph from like Jack Kirby and... Well that's that's the autograph to get, mate, if you're gonna get one. (laughs) From Jack Kirby, I got one from him and Ray Bradbury and whatchamacallit had just come out. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had just come out. So Kevin Eastman did a little thing, and Sergio Aragonis, all those guys. It was just it was
0: cool to see all the fun people. Archie Goodwin. I don't know. Ah, Archie Goodwin's genius, man. Brilliant. Uh, I mean, and you know, one of his great creations, of course, was a manhunter with waltz at waltz which is at that has aged spectacularly well they put out a hardband edition of that another hardband edition of it within the last couple of months it's just such beautiful work it hasn't aged yeah. at all oh totally and so
1: the, the thing for me when i first went to san diego con we're just going to go down this route if you want yeah <laughs> <laughs> was being able to see the people that you just read about and stuff it's yeah. like when you saw Jack Kirby, he was the most popular person there. And he was he was the only one that had, like, guards around him because people were mobbing him and everything like that. But other people were really approachable. Like, or actually, Bill Sienkiewicz was very much, he had people around. But they all had tables and stuff like that. So, like, my one friend, he was doing a whole series. He had big, giant poster boards. And he owned a comic book shop. And he was having some... He had different artists draw different members of the Legion of Superheroes, and so he had, he had Bill Sienkiewicz draw one, and I thought that was super cool. But he had pretty much every single artist that you can imagine draw someone. I don't know what happened to that. I need to find out what thing, what he did with it. He was trying to get it inked because he had the, all these big giant things, and so.
0: What a what a what a great concept for yeah right yeah that, that, that's such a brilliant thing to do to have a theme like that i love i absolutely love that idea van something i wanted to ask you about is that um like two of my closest californian friends and indeed like my uh, stepdaughter-in-law you are a filipino american right yes and, i am like and and so my my stepdaughter-in-law her, her father was a guy called mark cramp who's a very famous boxing journalist for the for sports illustrated it's so no longer with us but he met, he was Ali's favorite journalist, and he oh. met her mom while he was covering the thriller in Manila. She was a, like a right. local beauty queen. They got okay. married and that's how like, she came into the world. Yeah, he coined the word, he, his, her dad, Mark Cram, he coined the name, Thriller in Manila. But oh, actually, yeah, I, I, I have a bunch of like so Filipino Americans, very like close friends of mine, but you were just born in Manila, right, mate? You actually grew up in California.
1: Yeah, I was born there. Um, in December, and then my dad left there January 1st because he felt like he's like in a numbers and he's yeah. all, this is where we're gonna make a new start. So he left and then he, whatchamacallit, then it took nine months for him to get everything together and stuff. And then he was able to bring us over. And the interesting thing about that, because I was asking a couple of days ago, do you remember the day that, We came over and he told me the date. He goes, I remember that because I think it was a day, one to three days later, Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law. Wow. So we probably wouldn't have been able to leave if we hadn't left on that flight. So that was really interesting. I was like, oh, okay. There's a little bit of history right there. (laughs) Yeah, right on. That is amazing. Yeah. Amazing that you could there's other random things like I just learned my grandfather turned a hundred a number of years ago, Brilliant. and so his little brother was like ninety-seven. He came over. He well, he he lived up in Canada, so he came down for the celebration. And so I was sitting around talking with everybody, and they're telling me this story that I had never heard before. And my I wrote about it like on a Facebook post or something when he actually passed away. And my dad read it. He's like, "Where did you hear this?" I'm like, "Auntie." I think, Auntie Blue, no, Auntie, Flo, Auntie Flory told me, I think so, right? No, Auntie Ellen told me. Anyways, um, and he goes, I'd never heard that story. I go, well, okay, well, there's that's kind of funny. But the story was that my grandpa, he used to come to Hawaii and pick and go, he, he's a farmer. So he would pick coconuts and do um, farm work here in Hawaii, and then he would fly back to the, not fly, I'm sorry, take a ship back to the Philippines and and bring the money back. So he did that several times. And the last time he did it was on September of 1941. And so he was there hanging out, and he was getting drunk with a bunch of the servicemen, all the GIs and everything. And he was doing some stuff over at the, he was doing stuff over at Pearl Harbor. And so they got drunk. They ended up not going back to the naval base that night. And that's when it got bombed. Wow. So basically he could have died if he didn't have a night of debauchery.
0: (laughs) See, debauchery always helps out. It's always, it's always a positive thing there's always a positive application for debauchery which i thought was interesting uh, on, on another
1: level because like my father was born in february of 1941 and then my grandpa left in september to go do the thing and then he was not allowed to go back to the philippines because it was occupied by the japanese so he when he finally went back i think my dad was like six or seven years old it's like he didn't; he had no idea who his dad was because his dad he had never seen his dad. Yeah. So I thought those are kind of interesting things. Yeah,
0: no, very interesting, very interesting indeed. That and and did you did you when you when you were growing up in California? What when did you become aware of the fact that you were going to pursue a career in animation? Did that come to you late, or was it something you always felt inside yourself? That came.
1: More in college, I think, because what I wanted to do was draw comic books growing up, but it wasn't. It wasn't. My dad didn't want me to be a starving artist. Yeah. So I was like, okay, then I can go into graphic arts or studio arts, and I can because that wasn't a um, that wasn't a route that he wanted to support. So. I, I got, I was accepted to Loyola Marymount University, yeah. where I was a undeclared communications major. Yeah. So by the time I declared my major, I was a studio arts major, but that, first, so I was pretty much, excuse me, I was on track to doing more drama stuff, I think, like the totally random thing that I did, like my junior, senior year of high school, I was very much into the drama department. So I really liked, I was like, I want to be an actor. I want to do that. That sounds really, really fun. But I wasn't the greatest actor. <laughs> I just like the arts in general. So like I tried to do theater and stuff, and I wasn't very good. It's like when you get to someplace and you're like, I'm not very good at that. That, or you you think that you're really good when you where you come from. Like in Salinas, there wasn't a lot of actors, there weren't a lot of artists. So you're like, you know, the big fish in small pond, he's that guy that does all those amazing things. Or And when they say amazing, it's like he does those things that are like below average, but still amazing. And, <laughs> and so when I got to LMU, one of my friends told me there was an animation class. I go, oh, that's fun. I've always wanted to do animation. And I went there and I saw it. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I was at the time my I had a work study job that was in the um, film department. So I was handing out film equipment and all that stuff because I was like, I want to be a film major. This that's what I want to do. That's gonna be my thing. And film being a film major is really expensive, what I found out. We didn't have the money for me to be a film major. I didn't have the money to, I didn't want to go into TV because TV was really. It wasn't a very good medium. I don't know if you. Ever, it, in the, this was the late '80s, early '90s. TV was very poor in terms of video quality and everything. Yeah. yeah. And so when my friend took the animation class, I went in and he watched his film, and I was like, I can do that. Yeah. Because it's like I can use my artistic skills. And I can use my, what I want to do is do film because I can make a little film and I can screen it in the main theater, which is totally cool. And I don't have to be a film major and I can screen something else. Like that's that would be awesome. So that's kind of where I got excited about it. And then I took the class my sophomore year and then it became the TA for the next two years after
0: that. Oh, that's interesting. I, 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 I didn't realize that. So you were teaching assistant for two years, yeah?
1: Yes, and so I filmed everybody's, I learned how to use an Oxbury camera. So in between I would play with the pencil test machine and learn all kinds, and I would do my own little films in between. So I learned a lot about timing and everything. And then, then like by the time my, I, it was my senior year, I had to do a senior thesis. And so I was still an art major, but they said I can create my own major at the university. And I can do an art major with an animation emphasis. Yeah. I was like, that is cool. And so my final class, I got to name it. So I in my college transcripts, I have a class called Vantasia. (laughs) (laughs) And in my Vantasia class, that's where I did Johnny Bravo. Yeah. And the way they tell it at the school is that I was very ingenious in that. It was the first multimedia presentation where I did the film and I had live actors on stage and musicians and we did a whole live reenactment, I guess, of the soundtrack. So no one recorded it because we didn't have video cameras and all the other stuff handily ready, readily handily, whatever that is. The word is readily available. So yeah, that was a really, really fun one. But what had happened is I didn't get my soundtrack put together on the mag tape and everything. I didn't get it properly mixed. So I only had a film with no soundtrack. So that's why I had to be resourceful and say, hey, I grabbed a bunch of my friends and said, hey, do you want to do a live performance? So all the people who did the um, live performance were who actually did the voices in my film were my friends in the theater department. And I had friends in the music department that came up and played. And so it was a
0: good time. That's amazing. And did, did that did that then lead you into the was it was it a, essentially a an initial short that you created or did your thesis project become the short that was the building blocks for Johnny yeah, Bravo? It was the building blocks. My thesis project was
1: about an over the hill aging rock star, pretty much yeah. Elvin in the whole white jumpsuit and that's what my senior film was. And I I tried to get it everywhere. Like I brought it to the Spike and Mike Film Festival. They didn't care for it. I was gonna try and enter it into like other film festivals but no one was totally interested in that. But at the time, my animation teacher, his name was Dan McLaughlin. He was friends with this guy named Buzz Potemkin and Buzz Potemkin was the executive producer of, they worked together on Peter Pan and the Pirates over at Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. Anyways. This was 1993, and the Cartoon Network had started. Was it 91, 92? I think it was. Ni- it was 92. That was there. That's when it was birthed in 92. And they basically, if, if you look up Cartoon Network history, they Fred Seibert, who had come from, am I going into a weird story here? I don't know if you. No, I, 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 I'm really enjoying this. this is, I really want to hear it, yeah. I was like, am I telling a story that's like all over the internet that you could just read or whatever? Oh, no, but it, also, it's much better hearing you say it. <laughs> well, from my perspective, so Cartoon Network was brand new. All They had the whole Hanna-Barbera library. And they were looking to do original animation. So what Fred Cyber did, he formed this group which was like, they called themselves the Cartoon Network Advisory Board. Yeah. And so he brought together all these people from like Fritz Feeling and John Chris Lucy, and Bill Hannon, Joe Barbera, and like Jerry Beck was part of it. Ed Benedict came to be a part of it. Um, a bunch of just people in general who had worked on short cartoons it was more of a publicity stunt than anything, but they wanted to get them all together. Mike Lazzo was there and they wanted to talk to them and say, what made cartoons funny? That was the yeah. big question that they wanted to ask everybody. Um, How come cartoons aren't funny anymore? Because at that point in time, the shows that were out were like He-Man and Strawberry Shortcake yeah. and Transformers, everything that was based on toys and such. that That's all it was, was a marketing tool for toys. And so what they came up with was, it's just, it was all about one director, one idea, not necessarily one idea, but it had to stem from just someone's love of something and their perspective and just seeing that through. And so they said, great. So then we're going to start up this shorts program. And because Joe Barbera was like, you know, seven minute shorts, that's how we all started. That's it tells you a story. You don't have to invest all this money into a pilot and then test it and all this stuff. It's like if you can if you create a great character and you can see them in seven minutes and everyone loves it, then that's awesome. But it's supposed to be seven minute shorts. So you only have time for like big, like crazy antics, like a Tom and Jerry. That's what they think. Yeah. So they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find the next show creators, the next directors. And we're going to go through schools. We're going to go all around the world. We're going to ask for submissions. We're just going to take pitches. And then we're just going to create 48 new shorts. And that's what they called the, what are cartoon shorts, the world premiere tunes. Yeah, I remember those very clearly. Yeah, that I was at the very first pitch that they had. That was an interesting one because they all brought all these people in. I was brought I was there. Well, if you want me to take another step back, I'm telling you the longest story ever. <laughs> yeah. I want it, mate. This is, this is precisely what I wanted to talk to you about. I'm sorry. But so what happened prior to that? They so, like I said, Dan McLaughlin was friends with Buzz Patampkin. Buzz Patampkin was the producer of this. And so when they said, let's do all these shorts, Buzz, Tom went to my teacher, Dan McLaughlin, who was, he was a part-time teacher at Loyola Marymount, but he was also full-time head of the animation department at UCLA. So because of that, he went to him and said, hey, you have a lot of students at UCLA. Can we see their films and see if there's anything that we like? And Dan called me. I was working at the Westchester Lutheran School doing after school daycare and he's like hey your film I want to show it to Hanna-Barbera because they're looking for new shorts for a program they're doing I'm like cool so I sent it and they liked it they asked my teacher Dan McLaughlin who's the head of the UCLA animation department if he had any films he included my film in there and they called back about five of us they yeah. said we like these five films and can you develop a show for us I go, they said, we we're all okay. We each individually met with this lady named Ellen Cockrell. Yeah. Who's the head of development at that point in time at Hanna-Barbera. And she's like, I like, I really like your show but we cannot do Elvis. So <laughs> if you can come up with a character that is not Elvis we would love to see what you have. And so that's how I came up with Johnny Bravo because he's not Elvis. Yet he's very much Elvis, but he's more of a conglomeration of all the things that I like. It's like when, when people always say, write what you know, I'm like, okay, cool. So then I love, I love the Elvis character. I love his craziness, but I also like Michael Jackson. At the time, I yeah. liked the way he moved. I loved the, the Dover boys that because of their animation style and so the way that he was moving that that was a key thing that I wanted to keep from my student film and then there was what I I gave him blonde hair so he'd be more like James Dean yeah than he was I gave him aviator sunglasses because top gun was big <laughs> and I was like okay you can have glasses like that because I didn't want just specifically round glasses specifically square glasses I'm like they have to have some sort of shape so those Ray-Ban aviator sunglasses that's the shape that I want to give (laughs) him and his original design was in I kind of when I was coming with Johnny Bravo I or the original my student film I took a bunch of Al Hirschfeld drawings yeah and I kind of did a weird a cartoonish version not that they're not already cartoons but I would Simplify them, and then I would
0: draw aviator sunglasses on them. I I find I find that so fascinating because the minute you say it, I can absolutely see that influence, and it's never crossed my mind before. I'd never thought of it, but I I can see the Al Hirschfeld influence in the way. I can show you the drawing.
1: I can show you the drawing too, but it's the exact same one. But, anyways, that's 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 where that came from. I'm backtracking. I'm going. I'm going. Sorry. um so anyways they asked me to develop something i developed a couple of characters actually and i said and i came back and i pitched them to them and johnny rob was the one that they like i drew johnny Bravo with like popeye arms and stuff like that yeah. because i was designing him in this weird funky way i, I just like popeye at the time as well anyways and like in my original show you'll see short he i redesigned him as we went along but original pitch design he had Popeye arms but anyways I pitched it to them on that first pitch day and they liked it actually I can can take one step back because after we all got the go-ahead of what Hanna-Barbera wanted to see we all met together at UCLA the five people that they chose and we all pitched to each other and we tried to make it give the best show that we could so like There'd be people, Chuck Sheets, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's an animation timer. He was one of the people, this guy, Will Panganiban. He was uh, an amazing, another great cartoonist. They they all had shows and they pitched them and we'd give notes. I pitched mine, they gave me notes. And then we all went on that first, well, not all of us went on that first day, but definitely me and Will went on the first day. And then who else pitched on the Pat Ventura pitch that first day? And do you want me to tell you who pitched on the first day? Because I have it right here. Oh, yeah. I'd love to know. Why do I have? I have a lot of binders that have a lot of things in them. And one of the things that I have is I have the history of Johnny Bravo in them that told what the pitch days were. Like this one, this is the original ad that they had that was in animation magazine see this was the original johnny bravo I, oh, I that's that design, so
0: fascinating yeah right and they pitched this design so that was yeah. the johnny the bravo so there was um, the mullet version and then there was the classic johnny <laughs> as we came to know yes.
1: i was like that would be a super cool thing so the very first pitch was on friday september 24th at nine thirty a.m so There was Bill Hanna, Bob Honorado pitched a show called Hard Luck Duck for Bill Hanna. And then Tony Craig and Robert Scanaway pitched a show called Two, The Many Hats of Leon and Rufus. Will Panganibon pitched a show called Sub Hero. And Pat Ventura, he pitched a show called Georgian Jr. which ended up being uh, one of the shorts. And then I pitched Johnny Bravo. So those were the first pitches. So that was 90, yeah, 94. So Friday September 24th 1994
0: was <laughs> the first pitch for the what A Cartoon show and do you think it's amazing that you you ended up being like the first show that really blew out from that and you were one of the first ones that was ever pitched it it, it look, looking back it must feel like an amazing sequence of events that you you know you you you, you got that opportunity right to begin with almost It seems straight out of college and then bang, you're in on the first day of the pictures and bang, everybody loves it. And and B, it blows out and becomes one of the signature characters. That must have been an amazing ride for you. It was a super amazing ride. It was one of those
1: fun things. It was like an extension of college. Except you have a new student that you're friends with, um, because then became friends with all the CalArts guys. And so, or just everybody, well, like when I first, like my first day at Hanna-Barbera was, actually it wasn't the first day, I'll tell you why, because it was like January 16th of 1994. No, I'm sorry, it was supposed to be January 18th. My first day at the studio was supposed to be January 18th, 1994. I'm saying that day, because January 17th was the big Northridge earthquake, if that's correct. It's either the 21st, I'm I'm pretty sure, but it was the day after, I was supposed to start the day after that Northridge earthquake. And so the earthquake happened, everyone's like, oh, whatever, and I had to call the lobby and say, are you guys still open? And they're like, no, this guy, Lobby Bobby, he's all, no, nobody's here. like, like, you have to call back later. And I was like, okay. So uh, my first day was not good because I didn't even show up. I was all excited. My first day at Hanna-Barbera was ruined by the earthquake. So anyways, they called me back and I started the following Monday. And they moved me in with Craig McCracken and Paul Rudish. So the three of us were the first people and we moved across the way from Pat Ventura. So there was the four of us were the first people on the shorts program that moved into the shorts hallway. So that was kind of a fun thing. But I, I, was, I since I was working by myself, Paul and Craig had just come off of two stupid dogs.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: And they were, so they were friends. And I was the lone guy out. <laughs> because I didn't know anybody else. And so what I would do, because it was right after college, I made like a goal. I go, I'm going to meet two people a week as while I'm here. And so I went and I just met everybody in the studio, became friendly with, with, friendly with a lot of different people. But what the funny thing, the thing that I did not know was that I was hired on a step program step process, right? Yeah, on a step deal. Yeah. because what had happened is I pitched the show and Fred Seibert did not like it. I can say that because he'll, I think he said it also. He did not like Johnny Bravo, Fred Sabert of federator and all the other things. But to his credit, all the women that were at the development meetings liked the show. This lady, Janet Mazzotti, Ellen Cockerell, Julie Kane Rich, all of them, whenever anybody was pitching a show, they'd go, what about Johnny Bravo? And Fred was like, no, it's not cartoony enough. And so they had me come back. They're all, Fred doesn't think it's cartoon enough. But what he was saying was, when they, remember I was telling you back a second ago that they had one of those uh, meetings with the Cartoon Network Advisory Board. And they said, you need this, a lot of physical comedy. And yeah. what they were looking for were comedy duos. Yeah. Like, like Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Like okay. George and Jr. And so that was their thing. And so Johnny Bravo didn't fit that. He was just, he wasn't very cartoony. You know, there wasn't a lot of squash and stretch in him. So I came back and I did a pass to show a bunch of physical humor. And I came back to pitch again on November (laughs) because I have that little thing there as well. And so that's when he said, yeah, you can, you're hired on a step deal. So I was told about it at the Annie Awards, because I went to the Annie Awards that night. And a bunch of them from Hanna-Barbera said, congratulations. Yay. I was like, oh my gosh, I got hired at Hanna-Barbera. And now I'm at the Annie Awards. And this is kind of cool. I remember going to the Annie Awards and seeing Roy Disney. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be working with all these people who I love. It's like, you saw, I saw Gwen saw You just see all the people that you're in awe of back when you were, and so that was kind of a nice introduction into just the cartoon industry. It was finding out I got, I got a green light on Johnny Bravo the night of the Annie Awards.
0: <laughs> that must've must felt amazing. And, and when you say you're hired on a step deal, what do you mean by that? Well, it meant that I am going to do, a, I'm going to write a script
1: and if they like the script, then you're still hired. Do a storyboard. If you like the storyboard, we'll keep going. If we like the voice cast, we'll keep going. So I was always on the edge of my seat thinking I was gonna be fired. Yeah, And I think it all stemmed from Fred not liking me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, he's got to prove that he's cartoony. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so that's what I had to do. I get there and prove that I was cartoony. And it just kept going. So I, that was a really, really fun thing because who's, there's a bunch of people that the only two people in the shorts program at that time that came straight from college were me and Seth MacFarlane. Right, yeah. So that was kind of a fun thing because everyone else was from CalArts or they were people who had, had productions companies or Bruno Bozzetto was from Italy. And Ralph Bakshi, he was Ralph. But for the most part, they hired a lot of people from within Hanna-Barbera Studios. And it was kind of a cool, neat thing to be like the, yeah. That... Well, Seth came like the year or two after I got there. I think that's what it was. Because we, do you know his story? No. You know who he is, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I just have to give a thing. So he was, we have, Hannah barbera has a thing called the Freddie Awards. Yeah. Or Fred Flintstone Awards. And they were given to UCLA and RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. And so we, since I was part of the directors and for that year at the Freddie Awards, they had all the producers come from the, from the studio and we watched all the submissions for the Freddie Awards. I forgot who won UCLA, because I presented that award for, and then for RISD, Seth MacFarlane won, because if you watched all the films that year, a lot, there's like sand moving, <laughs> and just very avant-garde pieces. And then Seth's was funny. Yeah. And, and after it was shown, we're like, do we need to watch any more of these? <laughs> Because they were just, it was just painful to watch all these really, (laughs) really arty pieces. Yes. And so he won. And so because he won, he pitched his student film to Hanna-Barbera. And then they picked it up. So that was a fun thing. So me and Seth shared an office once he came in and we just became friends. And it was just kind of a fun thing.
0: That that's wonderful. And have you guys stayed in touch over the years? No, we haven't. It's it's kind
1: of one of those things. We both it's he's when you're on a different level, you you he had his there was a point. It's like we were friends for like a long time and then it became he had his I had to go through his assistance and stuff like that. Yeah. And it just got frustrating because he'd always get busy and then We'd schedule something and then something would come up. And I'm like, you know, this is I don't want it. It's hard being friends with someone in general, but it's yeah. hard when when it's a weird it's a weird dynamic.
0: No, I guess I really, I, to... I really understand exactly the dynamic that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and if you, we if... didn't
1: I was Sorry. gonna say we didn't, we didn't leave on bad terms. I get it. Like I, the last I remember, his um, Larry King asked him about Johnny Bravo, and he said, "Yeah, my buddy created it." I go, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> That's the last that I remember. Actually, he when his ma, when his mother passed um, when she was in the hospital, I sent over because I, I take a lot of pictures. Yeah. Um, His executive producer was my producer. And so she called and said, you have a bunch of pictures. Do you mind sharing a bunch of, because I had a picture, a bunch of pictures of Seth, a bunch of pictures with his sister, because his sister worked on Johnny Bravo as well. And so they made a digital photo frame that they put beside her bed that just had a bunch of photos of them. So that was kind of- Oh, that's lovely,
0: mate. That's, That's really nice.
1: Yeah, so that was the last time I had it to do with- in his sphere
0: yeah no, no <laughs> I, I understand and, and to flip back to the creation of that that first Johnny johnny bravo cartoon which is the 900 pound gorilla cartoon right yes but yeah the, the, which is yeah which i i i couldn't tell you how many times i've seen that but it is a lot. And I, I and and my kids are both. Uh, that's funny. Did we, you ever see the big giant mistake that's gaping in that show? I must admit it's not at the forefront of my mind now, but I would love to hear was, what it
1: is. You well, know, when you watch it, you'll see it. If you, everyone's seen it and no one notices. So there's a scene where which I call Johnny's asking him about a gorilla, and the gorilla's like, Oh, have I seen a gorilla? So he's sitting there. Johnny's thinking about what does a gorilla look like? Yeah. And behind and behind Johnny the grill is making all these different faces, right? Yeah. And then Johnny has an epiphany goes a gorilla and then the camera pulls out if i remember this correctly and you're looking at the grill and the grill is like shivering but if you look at Johnny he's missing his lower half of his body. <laughs> because I oh, mate, pulled I'm, out I pulled yeah. out too far yeah and and I, and I didn't
0: notice it and I was like oops okay oh well <laughs> <laughs> I've never <laughs> noticed that I'm, I'm when, we, when we're done talking I'm gonna check it out mate for sure it's because um the focus goes on the gorilla so you're not looking down
1: at the lower like nine percent of the screen and but it's there it's just funny yeah. to me.
0: That's brilliant. How did you find Jeff Bennett?
1: That was an interesting one because Jeff Bennett had just started. I think he was on Road Rovers. That I think that was his biggest show at that point in time. And we were auditioning folks. Chris Zimmerman and I, she was the head of recording at the time. And she basically brought in all these different voice actors to audition for Johnny Bravo. See, like I said, I have this book that shows the audition process. This is the recording schedule of all the people that were auditioned. The main person that they were going for was Jess Harnell. Yeah, that's funny. So, it's like that day, Jess Harnell auditioned at two o'clock, and Jeff Bennett auditioned at three thirty. Anyways, <laughs> if you want to know like basic timing. Jess Harnell was the official voice of Elvis Enterprises. Okay, so there was a, I think there was a Pizza Hut commercial or a Pizza Sump commercial where it was the very first time the Elvis estate allowed someone else's voice to come out of Elvis's face. Yeah, got it. And so he did the voice of Elvis for that. And so Chris Zimmerman was pushing Jess. I can say this now because I told Jess this is what happened. And he was like, since he was the voice of Elvis, they wanted him to be the voice of Johnny Bravo. That would be super cool and what happened was jeff bennett came in and jeff bennett gave me a really young sexy johnny bravo i guess you can say yeah. he jeff bennett came in with the Hur! he was yeah. the one doing that Hur! i think it came it was very Hur! it's very <laughs> when you do it you can't do it sitting down um, <laughs> I was like, that's so funny. And the improvs that he was giving were making me laugh. And I was like, I want Jeff. I think he would be amazing. But then I had, they're like, but Jess Arnell is, is the official Elvis voice. He's, and he's so good. And I'm like, but it's a totally different thing. And I think Jeff would, and cause Jeff wasn't the proven voice person. Jess Arnell was on Animaniacs and stuff like that. And he was really, really good. But I fought, that was the one thing that I fought for and so, against people's will, we got Jeff Bennett. And the other funny thing is that Jeff Bennett, it might have been that same day, they told Jeff Bennett that he got Johnny Bravo, but they also told him that he got the Schnickums and Meat show. Yeah. But he did the exact same voice for both. I don't yeah. know if you've seen the Schnickums and Meat show. <laughs> <played> yeah. The <laughs> Texkin star. Yeah. So, Tex Star comes out, and it's the Johnny Bravo voice. Jeff tried, did his best to not, he tried his best to do Elvis for Johnny Bravo, but when he did Tex Star, he tried to change his voice, but the directors always pushed him to be more Elvisy. <laughs> yeah, right. When he wasn't doing then he, they'd push him, push him, and then he'd do his Johnny Bravo voice, and then they'd go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, and so he felt so bad and then text inside didn't keep going
0: yeah and and the truth is that <clears throat> it's one of those things that i'm sure it was a big deal at the time but nobody remembers text inside nobody remembers any of that stuff it's completely yeah. lost in the mists of time what what i think i think you were you know as a big fan i, I think one of the major engine rooms of of Johnny Bravo's success. And certainly why I love him so much, my family does, everybody I know does, is that super iconic design that you came up with, married with that amazing vocal rendition that Jeff does. And, And it's not really Elvis, it's kind of Elvis adjacent. Yes. And, and that whole kind of... But he brings that stammering kind of energy he gave in his early 60s movies performances without yes. it being an impression of Elvis. And I think that's the that's what really sells the humour as well. And, and, and bringing in the karate stuff, the, the vocal inflections, it's just just even talking about it makes me laugh. Well, that's very nice.
1: Thinking about it makes me laugh too. Uh, yeah. Because I thought it was fun. Because it was... It was... Because... As you can see, I'm not the greatest
0: ladies' man. (laughs) Well, I have to say, mate, I think that's nonsense because you're spectacularly well-preserved. You know, you look a good good 25 25 years younger than you really are. You're not a dissimilar age to me. And uh, you look a hell of a lot younger than I do, mate. It's unbelievable. Your genes are phenomenal. (laughs) That's very nice. Well, anyways, so, okay, I'm muy
1: guapo. So I'll take that. The problem was, that's kind of like the, yeah, that's the college age me hyped up. But that was always, I was always hanging out with the Johnny Bravo type guys. And so I knew what they were, but I also knew who they were. So there were a lot, there's a lot of sadness in their bravado. Yeah, right. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so that's what I try always tried to channel was that this that Johnny Bravo is this very sad and lonely person who covers it with his machismo. Yeah. And the thing is, he is, so there's a lot of it that is me because it's not like he ever gets the girl. It's not like I ever got the girl. It's actually, I've married my wife. So, I mean, so I got the girl, but I wasn't like a guy who dated a lot of people I think she my my wife was the second person I ever dated but yeah I, I just tried to channel a lot of the things that I learned from a lot of people
0: I guess you can say yeah and I think you can feel it all there in the in the character that sadness at the heart of him that loneliness I think that's palpable but also yeah. the fact that he has a warmth to him as well you know yeah. he's he, he's not he's he he's not he's not callous. He might often be very self-involved, but there is a warmth to his actions. You know, I mean, and and he has these people in his life who he's he's kind of loyal and devoted to. Yes. Yeah, and and so I think there's without being too preachy, there's such a lot to like about him. And by the way, just to say another thing about Jeff Bennett's amazing performance, he is actually responsible for two of my all-time favorite cartoon voices. Yeah. Um, number one is is Johnny Bravo. But number two is a relatively obscure character, I think. But it's a performance of his that I love. And this is when I realised how talented he was, when I realised it was the same guy. And it's the one of the villains slash a kind of anti-hero from the show Phantom 2040. And he plays oh. Maxwell Madison Jr. who is is basically, the, in, in Phantom 2040, the, the bad guy is is, is, is female, is Rebecca Madison, I think her name is, and she's voiced by, oh man, the original, Lois Lane from Superman. But yeah, exactly, Margo Kidder. And he plays her kind of, he, 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 he plays her son, who's a kind oh. of uh, unpleasant mummy's boy. He's in every episode and he's devoted to his cat he has this kind of love relationship with his cat and uh, who's called Baudelaire. And it is, you want to check it out, mate. Just, I'm sure that must, uh, check out an episode of Phantom 2040 where he's doing, Max Madison Jr. And his voice is so utterly creepy in that. You just never forget it once you hear it. And and I, it was a couple of years later when I realized it was the same fellow doing those voices. I was like, man, the, the two voices are worlds apart. You can't hear any of Johnny Bravo and Maxwell Madison, and you can't hear any of Maxwell Madison and Johnny Bravo. So when I realized the same guy, I was like, man, that guy, he's super talented. He's amazingly talented. <clears throat> I love Jeff. He's, I loved his
1: Lord Bravery in Freakazoid. Yeah, right on. Really good, yeah. Yes, I think we we ran the gamut of all the Jeff Bennett voices throughout the years. Yeah. Of, Can you do this? Because he he since he was there, he was always a utility player as well. So that was a fun thing. That um, must
0: that must have been so much fun.
1: It was very fun.
0: The show that
1: we always talk about though was
0: the Adam West episode. Now uh, this is precisely you could probably see this coming. This is one of the episodes I was going to ask you about. So please continue. Uh,
1: well, in the Adam West episode, it was the only time that, we'll call it Sunderman. She was the, she was, for Johnny Bravo, the first season, she was my assistant director. But since then, she's gone on to direct everything. She just finished, during, she just directed Space Jam. Yeah. But she's oh, nice. one of the most prominent voice actor directors in animation right now but she, she said it was the only time that she ever saw Jeff Bennett actually crack because usually he's just fine. But Adam West was so funny and he made us laugh so hard. <laughs> Jeff just had he just broke and it was the funniest <laughs> thing to watch him. because Adam West was like the best person. Um, that, anyways, that episode was like
0: one of my favorites. We were actually going to
1: make an Adam West show. I don't know if we ever told you.
0: Oh mate, you you've never mentioned this, and I, I would I, that would have been phenomenal. So here's here I'll tell you a random story that we don't
1: I don't tell a lot of people. So here's a story that I never tell people. <laughs> <laughs> I because no one really, when you when you're in one of these interview things, they always talk about the same thing, so I always tell the same stories. I don't think I've told this one. So Adam West's agent called me after the recording and said, you just made Adam feel like a 12 year old boy when he came in and he wants to come in and just pitch you a show. I go, okay, that sounds cool. Tell him to come in. So Adam West came out for a random pitch session with me and Butch Hartman, Seth McFarlane was there. I think Steve Marmel and Mike Ryan were there as well. I'm not positive, but I think I just had all the writers there. So he came in and he, we just chatted it up with Adam West. We came, they came, came in my office. I wish I had pictures of just Adam West hanging out in my office because that was just like the best of having Adam West come in. And then he pitched us this show called Snake Dog. And he's like pitching this show. And he had these drawings and we're all, Adam, did you draw this? He's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool um, and, and it was funny because after, you can learn a lot about somebody in their voice by watching them and you can find out where their breath is because that's what Jeff Bennett was doing he was finding out where Adam West's breath was and how to imitate him so Adam West he talks at the edge of his voice and it's just <laughs> really <laughs> Robin that it, it, it's a, it was just a really, really fun thing. I guess that's, I, I don't know if that's what made Jeff crack, but anyways, he pitches snake dog. And what had happened at that point in time was Warner brothers had just bought Hanna-Barbera. So who was the, I think Gene McCurdy was taking a tour of the studio. And she came in because I think Fred Seibert was giving her a tour and they opened up the door and Adam West is hanging out. Like, yes, Adam's going to be our new writer on the show. <laughs> We're just Messing around and stuff like that. It was just the coolest thing. But Butch and Seth came up with this idea of Adam West, private detective where Adam, Adam West would have played that same character where he makes up mysteries and stuff like yeah. that. But then Cartoon Network basically said, we don't want to base a show around a personality.
0: Oh, man. What a lost opportunity. That would have been phenomenal. Yeah,
1: so the funny, so after that, when Seth got his own show, he brought in Adam West. Yeah. Butch got his own show. He brought in Adam West because we just had such a great time with him. That And then when I got, he, I brought Adam West back for the fifth season of John and Bravo, where he did the Blind date rama
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really fun. yeah yeah absolutely. yeah no, yeah so, so. anyway hey i i i i had an encounter with adam west back in the day and he was such a wonderful person one of his agents is a good friend of mine and and i, I was just so impressed with him because that i've told the story in the show before so i won't tell it now and it's rather a long one but basically what it all adds up to is Adam West is a really fucking nice guy. He was a really fucking nice guy. And he, he yeah. went out of his way to genuinely connect with fans of his. The first movie I ever saw was the 66 Batman movie. And oh, nice. Adam West fans don't come much bigger than myself. There are people who love him as much as I do. but And he, he like surprised me with a phone call once. And it was just one of the loveliest moments of my entire life. So I, I know, having gone through that, what, how awesome it must have been. To had, have him being able to work with him multiple times and have that experience, yeah, you know, it must have I'm been. I'm sorry, there's someone. My they're doing my lawn.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so if that, I don't know if it's too loud, it's I can't. Loud. No, I can't. I can. I can't really hear any lawn mowing noises, so we're all good. Oh, okay, yeah. good. So I'm good. glad. I, I, so yes,
1: Adam West is awesome. I love he. He's just he's a really sweet guy, and he's the yeah. as funny as I'll get out, and he's very yeah. self-deprecating and very self-aware. Yeah, what he's doing. So, what what was your
0: experience with like?
1: My experience with Donny Osmond was super fun. I've worked with him about five times, but I never worked in the same room with him. So he one time was in Marie's house. Another time he was in Vegas. Another time he was in a because he was always in a hotel room somewhere because he was always on tour doing something yeah work with him and then i had him on the video game which was a whole other random thing but he we actually if we got to do the second season that i wanted to do he was going to be a regular character
0: ah brilliant
1: yeah but that just never came about but he was just funny I have random outtakes of him saying funny things or doing goofy things. I loved that he gave a shout out to the show on his, when he had the Donnie Marie Talk show. And he basically told me that at the time, Johnny Bravo introduced Donnie Osmond to new fans. Like there's yeah. a number there was a lot of kids at that time when the shows came out that knew Donny Osmond because of Johnny Bravo, not because of he was Donny Osmond yeah. in the 70s. So that was kind of neat. The, if you want to hear a random story about how we cast Donny Osmond, we, he was not our first pick, believe it or not. Our first pick was Scott Bale. Oh. <laughs> so it was supposed to be Johnny Bravo meets Scott Bale. We had a lot of tachi yeah. jokes.
0: That would have aged very differently from yes. the,
1: the way you ultimately went. It would have, but Scott Bale turned us down. <laughs> wow, amazing! I wonder if and that's so, a glimpse of his future persona you know, coming
0: <laughs> coming through there.
1: It's it's a kind of an interesting, funny thing because I would have.
0: I'm glad that it turned out that we got Donny Osmond, but yeah, yeah, me too. I I. I I think that's. I think those those first or second season guest star episodes are just such a lot of fun. And I I also correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly in my memory, you guys were one of the first sort of production teams I can remember using the Scooby Doo team in a whole other context. I think when I saw them on Johnny Bravo, that's the first time I can remember it being done. Because it is. Yeah. Great, okay. And what I loved is you went right back to the first season Scooby-Doo Where Are You kind of format. So you had the you had the musical links yes. and the and the monkey style running around scene. Yeah. And I loved the way you really riffed on Fred and Daphne's relationship. And there was yes. all those kind of cues in it, which they'd never put in the Scooby-Doo episode, but they're all there in that Johnny Bravo. No,
1: episode.
0: here's the funny thing about that.
1: Scooby-Doo wasn't like on their radar at that point in time, but he was huge in my life. So much so, it was like the 20th anniversary of Scooby-Doo. And I was like, are you guys doing anything? They're like, no, we don't celebrate anniversaries. It's like, what? <laughs> that was Hannah Robert's thoughts towards Scooby-Doo. Because I guess at that point in time, they have the old school Scooby-Doo people were still there And they're just kind of, I'm guessing they were tired of Scooby-Doo the same way they were tired of Smurfs. So why celebrate something that you've been doing forever? And they didn't know, I don't, I think they had an idea of the global impact but not the greatest idea because the internet wasn't around.
0: Yeah, okay. If you can imagine that. So so they weren't aware of the deep level of love that people had for that character. Yeah, exactly. And that, that team of characters. I mean, I, I thought it was a glorious episode. I remember watching that in real time, so I must have seen it the first time it was on Cartoon Network UK, and I remember myself and my kids who were very young then. They're adults now, but they we were just blown away by that episode. And I particularly, because of you know, I'm in that generation that I watched you know, Scooby Doo, where are you? And in, in, when it was first aired. And then I I I always love the characters, but like everybody does, I got it, when it comes to classic Scooby Doo episodes. One of the issues is the amazing level of repetition when you watch one after the other after yeah. the other. When you're a kid, that works really well, but when you get a little bit older, it's like, oh man, it's the same episode every week, right? Particularly when they went beyond season one, because I think season one is kind of a different experience, and you yeah. really feel the Alex Toth of the character designs and all that. And yeah. it becomes this kind of different thing. But what you did was you hot-wired straight back into that season one vibe. And I think it just yeah. works so well. Well, they allowed me to <coughs> go into their stock animation,
1: which was super cool. Mm. So I got all the stock animation files. We, we sent them overseas, especially for like the walk cycles and everything. Yeah. Sent them overseas. The first time the overseas studio gave us the show back, there's that walk cycle that they use yeah they did not use it they did their own walk cycle for scooby-doo i was like oh no yeah that's okay they're like what why you you want us to like photocopy this walk cycle and just put it down i'm like yes i don't want (laughs) you to reanimate it you're not going to reanimate this thing you're going to use stock animation and stock stuff And so I had to push for that because the studio was like, but we can animate it so much better. I'm like, no, don't (laughs) animate it so much better. Just use what you have. That's the funny part of it. And so we did that. I can tell you the random story about Joe Barbera at that time. I finished the show and you know how, I wanted to show it to him and ask him, what he thought of it? And he, It was like in the afternoon, we put it on TV. It was just me and Joe Barbera in his office and we started watching it and he's like watching it. And the first time he said anything, he goes, you got the walks down. I go, yeah, (laughs) we used used all your animation. He goes, all right. And then as the show's going on, he starts falling asleep. (laughs) And I kept looking over and then every once in a while, I'm like looking at him he's fully asleep the show's still going and then there's a scene in this Johnny Bravo short where they're pulling off the masks yeah and they're all Harry the hypnotist <laughs> and then they pull it off and go Joe Barbera and Joe goes <laughs> <laughs> up and he said, Joe Barbera and then he looked over at me and I looked away and yeah. then he goes <laughs> like he laughed like <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't so I don't think he he's even seen the whole thing and then it was done and he basically thanked me and he's all are you gonna put any other characters in there I go yeah of course he's like that was great thank you I was like okay I'm gonna go now thank you for watching and I'm glad I got your little seal of approval so that was my nice that's
0: brilliant mate that's fantastic
1: so yeah did I did you know that Joe Barbera was part of our staff for like four or five weeks.
0: So uh, uh, what? So how did that come about?
1: So Joe Barbera had a open door policy at Hanna Barbera Studios, and I love I love Hanna Barbera cartoons. I just and I love his I love musicals. I love MGM days, all that stuff. Yeah. And so whenever I could. Whenever I had time and he was there, I would go to his office and just ask him about stories. I would just say, hey, Joe, can you, can you tell me about Gene Kelly? I know you work with him. He tell me a crazy Gene Kelly story. He tell me a story about Sid so He tell me a story about visiting Brigadoon when it was out there and all those different things. And so I just got to know him really well, really well in my world. I don't know if he, I was really well in his world, but anyways, he basically, when I got Johnny Bravo, I went in, I said, Mr. Barbera, would you mind working on my show? He goes, no. He's all, yeah, I would love it. And then Maggie, his assistant, she's like, he's not working on your show. He's, (laughs) he's going to be, he'll be, whatchamacallit, consulting. I go, okay, great. So he'll be a consultant on my show. So we invited him to all our, story sessions so we'd come in and we'd run jokes and it was funny good to watch him you just kept looking at everybody because everything was going really fast so i every time i'd have to go Joe, mr robert do you have any thoughts on that one and then he'd slow the pace down and then he'd tell a story and then he'd tell a joke and then we're like okay great let me start let me let me start riffing and stuff and doing all those things then every time we bring back to him But he'd have some funny stories or he'd come up with a funny joke. My favorite joke that he did, which I didn't realize was an old joke that he did because he always came up with old jokes that he did. So he had his bag of stock things. But one thing that totally was out of the blue and surprised me, we were trying to come up with ideas for an evil character. This was for our one episode called... Oh, uh, I forget what it's called. And anyways, we're like we we want to show like images of a villain doing bad things. What are some bad things that a villain could do? So well, you know, to show that he was bad, he could take babies and put them in the middle of a freeway. <laughs> <laughs> What <laughs> that's most favorite random Joe Barbera joke. <laughs> you can't do that, but that's a great <laughs> joke to show somebody fame. I guess you could do it now on Big Mouth or whatever you put it on, but
0: yeah. Anyway,
1: <laughs> At that point in time it wasn't. And then like four weeks later, his assistant Maggie gave us an invoice and said, here's what you owe Mr. Barbera, we're like, Wait, what? What? I thought he was, he's not free. <laughs> he's not, It's his, his computer. You know, his name's on the show. Like, on this, what? Like, no, you have to pay him for his time. I was like, We don't have money to pay him for his time. He's not <laughs> in our budget. And so we had to fire him. <laughs> <laughs> but he really enjoyed it. Like, when his assistant would come in, he'd like, I try to pretend to hide from her <laughs> just, just having a good time just being in a fun creative environment with a bunch of the other writers and stuff. And so,
0: and mate, you got to, you you, you know, you got to work with Joe Barbera. That, that's phenomenal. I mean, not just yeah. work for him, but actually have him work on his show. I think that's great. Yeah. And for that Scooby Doo episode, I got Iwo Talk to work on it
1: because he, yeah,
0: yeah right. You on. know,
1: he, he, so he designed Scooby Doo and all, everything. I wanted him to be a part of it. So he designed the backgrounds. That was really, really cool. I wish I had those because, but he'd helped develop the style and everything for the backgrounds. Cause he knew what that looked like. I tried to get all the old Hanna-Barbera people. I got Jerry Eisenberg was working on the show. Bob Singer, he also worked on the show. Ed Benedict definitely worked on the show cause Ed Benedict helped set the style for the show. I don't know if I told you all that stuff or if you know that history.
0: Yeah, I, so, I, I, I had heard something about that. So what were your seasons on the show? Do you have a particular favorite or do they all, both, the, the seasons just run together? I really liked the, there was
1: one episode of the fifth season that was, gosh, I really liked the cartoon makeover episode with Weird Al Yankovic and Gary yeah. Owen. And that yeah. was just a fun recording session.
0: Yeah, it must have been. Um,
1: Gary Owens made me laugh because Gary Owens, whenever you brought something up, excuse me, he would have an anecdote for that and name drop. So you'd say, uh, like, have you ever been in this restaurant? Oh, yes, I was at that restaurant with Marilyn Monroe back in 66. (laughs) (laughs) and He also... And like, oh, you sound just like, like a Clark Gable. Oh, yes, Clark Gable and I were at the search and such and blah, 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 back and forth. He yeah. had everybody. He had met, he had hung out with, he had a story about. Because if you ever, he used to do a radio show out here. And that's all he did. He would just talk about memories of old Hollywood. Yeah. And he had a whole history of the stuff. So it was just funny. And got to the point where we would... We did for a couple of minutes and we we're like, okay, mention this, see if he comes up with a story about it. And he would And, but he, he was awesome. When we did the Hanna-Barbera reunion, I did a panel for him and I had him come and he was actually, he hosted it. So he was the, who was that at that panel? It was back, it was back in 2006, I think. No, sorry, 2009. I put together a Hanna-Barbera reunion plus a panel And so Gary Owens was the host and we brought back Jerry Eisenberg and Ken Spears, uh, Ruby Spears, and Willie Ito and Iwo Takamoto and Butch Hartman. I think I said Butch a second ago. Anyways, and it was cool. I wanted Casey Kasem to come and talk, but he wasn't in the best of shape, but he, he came anyway. He sat in the front row. And so that was neat to see him there. But I think that was the last time we got to see Casey Casey and he stood up and waved to everybody. Yeah.
0: But that, anyways, That must have been awesome. Before we close out, Van, I just want to leap out of Johnny Bravo. I want to close on Johnny, but I just want to ask you a little bit about one of the things that you've been doing in the last couple of years is you did a lot of directing work on Pete the Cat, right? Yes. Now that looked to me like I've seen quite a bit of that and it, I really the the vibe and the atmosphere of the show. That seemed like quite a fun project to work on. Oh, it was an
1: amazing project. We were all in one house. So all the writers, all the board artists, the directors, the voices, everybody. It was like a little fun factory. And so it was just good times. We would go to all the recording sessions. People were so awesome. It was nice because the girl who played Sally the Squirrel, she's nominated for an Emmy this year, which is quite awesome. Brilliant. She... Plays the younger version of Mae Whitman in that TV show Good Girls. Yeah. And so Mae Whitman was the voice of Little Susie. Oh, that's
0: so it's just brilliant. Oh, that's what it's, a great so, connection.
1: Isn't that weird? So yeah. I got to work with both of them. So I started working with Mae when she was five. I gave Mae Whitman her yeah. first voice recording gig. She was that it was for Johnny Bravo. I heard her on a podcast talking about it. How she came in, and I basically she auditioned, and she came around the booth, and I told her she had the job, and she turned to her mom and was like, "Really? That's is that? It's that easy?" Her <laughs> mom's like, "No, it's not that easy." <laughs> so yeah, I, I gave her her first voice, voiceover gig, or cartoon gig. I don't know if she did car- commercial voiceovers before then. So yeah, it was and then she played little Susie with the whole thing. So I watched her grow up. And so now there's this new girl who pretty totally reminds me of May and who ends up
0: playing May as a little girl. It was just this weird kind of thing. What, what an absolutely amazing connection. And yeah. and the Pete the Cat's got an amazing voice cast. I I, I imagine yeah. it must have been pretty awesome working with Elvis Costello and Diana Kroll as well. It would have been. Um,
1: I ended up not going it was one of those things if we were to go to the voice taping we would have had to go to Vancouver oh wow okay yeah and so they weren't going to pay for us to go it's like if I wanted to go I would have paid for myself but I'm like I can't pay for myself to go up to Vancouver to do all those things but everyone else yeah everyone was great to work with because we have phones and everything I took videos of every single voice over person coming in and so i have this whole file of just random videos from all that and so that's cool and especially that show we worked with that studio cartoon saloon and just working with them was really really fun
0: just talking to the irish folk in kilkenny anyway. oh, yeah of course yeah right on I remember you and I had some dealings about them back in the day when you were when making the show. And the, the thing I think about, I think, I think what's wonderful about it is, for me, as an adult, I'm not the target audience of the programme, it has this wonderful mellow vibe to it. It's incredibly yeah. relaxing to watch. It's a great thing to watch, even if you're totally out of the target audience like I am. It's yeah, to watch late at night, you know, yeah. when you're sat in the lounge after a hard day. It's wonderfully relaxing, I think.
1: I totally love it. I love the music. I love there's a couple of things where I got to put in little random flavors of things. There's one episode where I do a whole Scooby-Doo parody. <laughs> nobody really sees. There's an episode where we have Pete the cat doing his hair. He does a little bit of a Johnny Bravo hair. There's really? one where I actually, I'm friends with Bootsy Collins. So I go, yeah. I'm gonna do a Bootsy Collins section. So I had him put on some Bootsy Collins glasses. Yeah, just l- random little things that I, little movements, little characteristic things that I, I like to do that I've got to f- f- inject in there. That's, yeah. that's
0: always been fun. Yeah, I, I think you should be very proud of it, mate. So it's it's it, I think it's uh, works on so many levels, you know, and and it's the kind of thing that you can watch with your grandchildren and really yeah. they'll really enjoy it and you really enjoy it as well. And a lot of people talk about that, but I think in reality it doesn't happen that often. Funnily enough, one of the times I've experienced it is when my kids were little and I was much older, and we yeah. were both watching Johnny Bravo and, and really having a good time. The two very different shows, but <clears throat> that element. Yeah, I, think I love a through line. I would I attribute that to Swampy
1: Marsh, who created Finnison. For he's the he's yeah. the showrunner for the Cat, and he he set that vibe down, and so we just followed suit. And he hired great writers and great board artists, and just there was just a lot of nice synergy around there. So it was very familial, and very much like everyone wanted the best for the show, and yeah. so everyone just brought out their best and did what they could and. I think it shows because we we still have a bunch of episodes coming out, which there's one I didn't direct, but there's a musical episode that I just love. It's super cool. Um, Jessica Biel plays the mom and she sings this really pretty song in there. Wait, no, this the song that Jessica Biel sings is a different one. She sings a totally different song. And there's a song in there about a teacher out of school how uh, the kids see their teacher and she's not
0: in school and it's weird. I just think that's funny. Yeah. And that was a beautiful topic for a song. And to 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 flip back to Johnny, when you look back on your creation of and sort of involvement with the character, is he, is he, is he in the show, or the other, is he still somebody you're, you're obviously super recognized for creating Johnny brown And I guess he'll follow you out throughout your life. Is yeah. he, is he somebody that you're pleased to be involved with? to be associated oh, with it's it's a funny
1: thing because i can look back at it and i can see all the mistakes that i made on it and see them see things that i didn't like stories that i didn't like animation that i didn't like and so i can't go back and watch them without being really critical Yeah, and going oh that's horrible but you know it it allows me to like my favorite thing was going to, on my uso trips and going to visit our military and seeing these guys who like first, I, I went one year with Rob Paulson. Yeah. And we, these, we went to all the Marine bases and these guys were showing us how they kill, kill someone with a if someone's coming after them with a knife, how to disarm them and kill them. All those different things, How how our military do the big buff, crazy guys. And then our host introduced them to us and you just see their faces melt and you just see them, oh, they recognize, they don't recognize us, but what overcomes them is that feeling of, I remember that, I remember being a kid watching that. And so you get to meet them as they were the kid versions of them, you know? And because we are not the characters, we can reminisce about that time and that feeling and it's kind of a bonding thing. And that's the coolness factor of it. The thing about Johnny is he's also a bit for from, from more of a mature audience, I guess you can say, yeah. but I didn't shoot for that. And so there was this kind of, not cool factor, but a fact, an edginess to that character. He wasn't for kids. So if you were a kid, you felt a little bit older and more mature and more wizened because you watched Johnny Bravo. And so, um, yeah. Anyways, those are just kind of little tidbits of thoughts that I have about that subject that you just asked.
0: Yeah, no, I get. It. I, I, I that, that is the hard agreement for me. I think you know when you hearing you say that, and I, I think again, you know, the he is such a. Such a powerful character in the sense that his design, his look, the, that look he came up with. And what was really fascinating about seeing your process there when you went from the uh, the early nascent Johnny into what he became, that look is just so powerful, that design. And it, it, it's so simple and clean, but it says so much. That yeah. matched with that great vocal performance, but also the energy you have. In, the, in that those first season episodes, everything we just talked about from the guest stars to the way it was all put together I, right. I think when you look back at everything else that emerged from that whole period of time with the the various shorts, Johnny's could just completely outlived all those other characters and has embedded himself into a whole generations public consciousness and I think few creators ever get the chance to do that to have a character that's so readily recognizable from a design perspective and everybody, you know, because I'm sure you could do your cartoon. I've seen you do, I've seen you sketch out Johnny on the table right now. Everybody would tell you it was straight away. And that must be an amazing feeling, I think.
1: It's a neat feeling, but it's also interesting because there are people who are offended by him and that would say that he doesn't work in a, in a me too movement kind of yeah,
0: yeah, I'm with uh, I, environment,
1: so. which is also funny to me because I get that part of it. But on the other hand, he was not created to glorify that lifestyle. Yeah. As I told you before, the reason why he is actually here is because of three ladies who said that this was their favorite cartoon. It wasn't the other cartoons, it was this cartoon because he's a recognizable person. When you ask kids about him, it's like, it Johnny Barber reminds them of their older brothers because I was like, okay, that's kind of a funny thing. When I talked to a number of people, you get, it's it was a common thread that he, he acted like what kids thought High school kids act how they acted so it's a recognizable trait of uh johnny bravo is a recognizable personality type he still exists and if you take out the womanizing part of him it's just the bravado and the machismo yeah. there's it's always going to be bravado and machismo and that's what who he is at his core, that's who he is. Whenever we we're writing episodes, that's what we focused on. It's about him trying to garner attention. Yeah. That doesn't go away. But when people say, Well, this guy who just picks up on women, yeah, that would not fly. That they wouldn't that that was the huge thing about him when we first when I first introduced him to the Cartoon Network. They're like, We're doing shows for kids, and we've got this. Guy who just picks up on women, does that, how do you make a toy for that? And so marketing couldn't get behind it. So that's why there's no real Johnny Bravo toys because they don't want this. Parents, parents aren't gonna buy a kid a toy about a guy who just picks up on chicks. I'm like Because if that's how you're selling it, that's how you're, that's what he leads with, but that's not who he is. No. And so if you watch the show, people have different ideas of who he is. And so that's what's neat about it to me. Is that he is recognizable? He's he would survive in a Me Too movement, and if I ever did something today with him, it's it wouldn't be to like bully kick bully people, or it wouldn't be just to pick up on chicks. The same way James Bond is right now. It's like yeah, right if on. you look at James Bond, James Bond was all about a, a womanizer who did whatever he wanted with women, and. Was an action hero, whatever you want, but it was all about the Bond girl, the you know, yeah. and how he was just totally masochistic. But that's not who his character was, and so they're able to update him, and focus on what he, who he truly was, was his
0: spy. So, anyways, that's I I, the long I completely part. agree. You can take Bond from the Roger Moore era, where when you watch those films, now you realize, man, he's sleeping with like ten different <laughs> women per film, you yeah. know, to being a guy who has one girlfriend per movie and that's it. And actually it's, it's it, and some of whom he doesn't even engage with on that level. You know, it, it's, it's, it, it's a completely different world. I remember my son telling Joe when we, when he was a th- we would watch an episode of Johnny Bravo and his mum came home she goes, what you been watching Johnny Bravo? She's like, what's it about? And he goes, well, he's this American man with big hair. And he sounds like Elvis. He wears sunglasses. And he's always trying to love women, but they are much smarter than him. And they always end up making him look very stupid and very silly. I thought, mm. yeah, there you go. That's it. He's completely got the, me- that's the message, right? The message yeah. isn't misogyny is awesome. You should do this. Yeah. It's not that at all. I don't, I don't even believe he's misogynistic. He's, he's just, he's out. He, he's, he's got one vision in his head, but he always fails miserably, you know, and yeah. he's, he's a never in, he never triumphs in those situations
1: yeah it's more about him it's it's the universal thing of it's everyone wants to be loved everyone wants attention everyone wants to be recognized and he just doesn't know how to go about it and he didn't have a father figure so it's like and he's got an overprotective mom who just says yes to everything for him so of course he's he pretty much raised himself yeah and so that's what you get and even in the real world, that's what you get. <laughs> if that, if those are your, uh, if that's the formula for your life.
0: So, I, think, I think that's very well said, mate. And you touched upon another great vocal performance, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, who I thought was amazing yeah. too. Yeah. She's just the, one of the most amazing
1: people. I love her. She's just always been so supportive of this. She's loved the attention that she got because everyone would always especially with kids. She's like, you're mama. And she just loved being mama <laughs> to like yeah. a whole new group of people. And so it was just the cutest thing. And we, yeah, I still talk to her. I still like, we'll call her in New York. She That's where she's at. And we still exchange Christmas cards. I'll send her Christmas And she writes beautiful Christmas cards. It's like a lot of people, they just send over the picture or a card and don't even sign it or whatever. She just writes these beautiful
0: things and she's just cool. I love her. Oh, that is absolutely wonderful mate. and that that is a perfect moment to close out on. Van, thanks so much for sharing you. your memories of creating this this character that's indelible to me and just about everybody that I know. One thing that unites just about everybody I know in the pop culture business, people within my family, is oh. I, I don't know anybody who isn't the Johnny Bravo fan and he's a, and it's supremely indelible. Uh, character for us within the Hannibal era pantheon within the cartoon pantheon so thank you so much mate well thank you we only touched upon things I have so many more stories <laughs> well you'll have to come back on again and we'll get into
1: some more of them that would be very fun thank you so much for having me That this is nice it it helped me practice my speech and talking to people and such. And so I didn't work on the eye contact, I'm sorry, because I don't know where to look at and it. it looks
0: like I'm looking all over the place. <laughs> well, <laughs> well exactly. and as I say, we're recording for Sam. So the eye contact's <laughs> not as important as the vocal delivery. And I was happy <laughs> to help you warm up those vocal cords. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us, brother. It's been great chatting with you. You take care of yourself. And, see you again soon. Yeah. and hopefully we'll see each other next year. That'd be awesome. Oh, I can't wait, I mean I'm desperate to get back to San Diego so the quicker I can do it the better and I'll very much look forward to seeing you there Very cool, I'll talk to you later You've been listening to Hard Agree This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan and our theme music, Golden was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio Hard Agree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner